the cops, you'll hear them all the time say, I can't talk about what I've done today at home. Well, I have, I have a, a BS card to throw down on that. Of course, you can talk about it at home, but you have to talk about it in a way that's palatable to you, the person that you're that you're living with. Welcome to the Cops and Writers Podcast. On this show, you will learn how to write the best crime-related novel or screenplay possible. Your host, Sergeant Patrick O'Donnell, worked the streets in one of the nation's largest police departments for over 25 years. Ride along with O'Donnell and his expert guests as they help you navigate the oftentimes confusing and misunderstood world of law enforcement. O'Donnell and his guests on this show do not represent any law enforcement agency. The content of this show is not meant to be legal advice. You think you need a lawyer? You probably do. Hey, Cops and Writers. Thanks for being here with us today for another episode of the Cops and Writers podcast. I'm Patrick O'Donnell, and I will be your host for today's show. This show is listener-supported, so thank you to all of you who keep this show going. I would especially like to thank those of you who are patrons of the show, most notably Francis Sheldrick, Kathleen Donnelly, Fran Cross, Catherine Kovacic, Richard Tolles, Ryan Ta, Melinda Colt, and Carl Vondero. Your generosity helps pay for the software, equipment, and my time producing this show. Yes, you too can become a patron for less than a cup of coffee or a pint of Guinness. Just go over to patreon.com forward slash cops and writers. I would also like to thank all of you who have purchased my books in the Cops and Writers series available on Amazon. Welcome, everybody. Today's show will be especially valuable for those of you who are first responders and maybe more important for their families to listen to. Or if you're curious about what goes on behind closed doors in a police family, there's so much good information here. I had to split this up into two episodes. My guest on today's show is known as the cop doc, Dr. Ellen Kirschman. For over four decades, Dr. Ellen Kirschman's specialty has been treating first responders, cops, firefighters, and their families who are suffering from work-related traumatic stress. Today's episode is going to lean more on the cop side of the house, but can be easily translated to other first responders. Dr. Kirschman is also an award-winning and best-selling author of fiction and nonfiction. She is best known for her for the gold standard book for cops and their families, I Love a Cop, What Police Families Need to Know along with Counseling Cops, What Clinicians Need to Know, and I Love a Firefighter, What the Family Needs to Know. Dr. Kirschman is also the author of a very successful crime series, the Dot Meyerhoff Mystery Series, where she blends real-life stories with cops into fiction. After chatting with the good doctor, I walked away with the feeling of, she gets it. Please enjoy this wide-ranging and hopefully helpful discussion. Dr. Ellen Kirschman, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Well, thank you so much for being here. And I have to thank Craig Kingsman of the Cops and Writers Facebook group for suggesting you for this interview. You know, I have heard of your book. I think most cops have heard of your book, either at an in-service or something along those lines. I love a cop is, I think... The first time I heard of it was at an orientation for new cops when they brought their spouses or partners. And it's like, here's a good book for you to understand what's going to be going on here. So I always knew of you and your book, but I never 
put it together until Craig is like, Hey, you should really have her on the show. And I'm like, absolutely. Of course I should have her on the show. So here we are. And I couldn't be more happy. So my first question to you is, have you ever loved a cop? Never. Oh, loved a cop. I've never had a date with a cop. Um, uh, I would have probably uh, lost my reputation had I done such. So, uh, but I do love a firefighter, and that would have been my brother, who was a volunteer firefighter. Oh, okay. And I have a book called "I Love a Firefighter" as well. So, uh, no, but no, people ask me that all the time. If I've ever been married to a cop, no. Well, neither have I. That was one of my rules. And, you know, I went through a divorce. And, you know, of course, I started dating again. And my friends are like, are you going to date a cop? And I'm like, first off, I'm a boss. That's that's a huge no-no. You're asking for trouble. And the dating pool amongst people of my rank are maybe a little bit higher is pretty shallow. Plus I don't want to date another cop. I I don't want to live with another cop. I just don't. Let me ask you this. My first day in the Academy, they said, well, you know what? The national divorce rate is like about 50%, give or take. All right. Congratulations. You're all cops. Now it's about 80%. And the guy's like, if you're ever silly enough to marry another cop, now it's up to about 90. Have you ever heard any stats regarding that? Yeah, I I hear those stats all the time, and they are inaccurate. And I do my best to uh, counter them because otherwise, it's like giving people a you know self fulfilling prophecy. I'm doomed to get divorced because I'm a cop. Um, As a matter of fact, I think cops are somewhere down around uh, ninth on a list of professions with high divorce rates. Really? I wouldn't have guessed that. And when you break that out into what kind of a cop and, you know, are you a, a detective? Are you a street cop? Are you a railroad cop? Are you a... Right. It, it sort of breaks out a little bit differently. But the highest the highest divorce rates are... You, you care to guess what professions have the highest divorce rates? Oh, boy. Psychiatrists? No. Uh, dentists? Well, I, won't, I, don't... I, won't, I won't torture you. Okay. So... Uh, bartenders. Dancers, oh, I could see that. Yeah. Dancers. They don't say what kind of dancer and uh, massage therapists. Uh, okay. What we know that influences divorce uh, largely depends on what state you're in, because people in the South of the United States get divorced most more. And perhaps that has to do with education levels hmm. or age at marriage. Nobody really knows. Yeah. And these these all of these statistics are very um, dicey because people don't have to, uh, particularly law enforcement, you don't have to report a divorce. So it's really hard to know accurately. What I do know is that we shouldn't be telling people that they're going to be doomed to be divorced because uh, that sends really a very negative message that isn't true. Yeah, I I remember coming home that night, and I did not tell my then wife, now my ex wife. <laughs> it's like you know, and I'm like, okay, I really don't want this. You know, it's yeah, I'd much rather stay married than be divorced. But you know, amongst my peers and the people that I worked with, I'd say it was a little higher than fifty percent for divorces. And I worked on the street in really high crime areas most of my career. 
So that's one of the problems. You had a bird's eye view of the people around you. That is totally different from national statistics. Right, right. That's what people say, because everybody I know is divorced. That must be true for the entire profession. What we really should be people, and part of the reason I wrote I Love a Cop, is not that you're going to get divorced, but here are the things you need to do to strengthen your marriage. Here are the things that you need to do um, to have an enduring marriage. But the message, of course, is not one that police departments care to give because the message is put your family in front of your job. Yes. Because the message is this is not your identity. It's just your job. The message is your family has to come first. Um, uh, Management doesn't want to say that to you. They want you to give everything you got and, and they don't care who gets hurt in the process to your job. Well, this is a rabbit hole I didn't expect, but I think it's fun because like most like young cops, well, I was 30 years old. I was actually kind of old when I first started the job compared to the 21 year olds running around. You know, I had visions of being a canine officer, a motorcycle cop, a SWAT operator. And I'm like, man, all that stuff would be so cool. But then I quickly figured out and discovered that, okay, you want to be a SWAT guy. All right. Well, you're going to have to work second shift, which is four in the afternoon or three in the afternoon to like 11, 12 o'clock at night. And it's like the same thing for the motorcycles in most specialty units. That's where you start. And I was working midnight to eight on the graveyard, but the graveyard worked good because my wife worked day shift. She had a normal job. So at least, you know, we would be able to see each other. You know, if I worked four in the afternoon till midnight, I would never see her. I mean, just like on an occasional off day, but other than that, ships passing in the night. And then when kids came along, I wanted to go to their football games, their basketball games. I wanted to be an active parent. And that's not going to happen if you're working that shift. It's, you know, it's like all the stuff happens after school. Mm -hmm. So guess what? You know, I chose my family before the job. I had plenty. I knocked down plenty of doors. I knocked out. I had, I had all kinds of policey fun where I didn't have to do that. Then I promoted and I stayed on the late shift for quite some time. I was what, 13 years on midnight to eight. And then I worked 7 PM to 3 AM for four years. So not until the kids got like much older then I got divorced. And then I eventually went day shift. But if, again, if I would have chose the job over the family, yeah, I mean, I would have been in, I could have done some really high speed fun stuff, but then I never would have been able to see my kids. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a pitfall. Yeah, no, it is a pitfall. The shift work is really tough. Now, cops aren't the only people in the world that do shift work for sure. Uh, And I, I think that one of the things that's important when you are doing work with officers at the academy level with the new hires and you tell them things about how this job is going to interfere with your relationships and how some of the skills you have on the street do not work well at home. Not only do they not work well, they were probably damaging to your personal relationships. We tell them that, but it's sort of like uh, trying to do premarital counseling with people who are deeply in love. They can't hear it. There's <laughs> yeah. no bell. 
these young folks have, the new hires have no roadware. There's, they have no Velcro for this information. They just sit mm. in the room and say, oh, well, I won't make that mistake. That'll never happen to me. And it's so we have to go back and do that same orientation and they'll give those same warnings and the same skills for dealing with your family. We have to do that again, maybe three to five years later. Now they have some experience. They know what you're talking about. Right. I think that's somewhere where most departments do drop the ball. And later on, you know, they can't figure out why officer X, Y, or Z is becoming a problem child, quote unquote, or they're having these issues and that issues. And it's like, okay, because, you know, these other things that may, maybe, or maybe not could have been cut off at the pass by like, let's address this. Let's talk about this. It never happened. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I'm totally on board with you that there, but maybe we'll circle back to that later. But yeah, okay. I was, I was looking at your website, which is actually very good. That's I, I really like your website. You know, I've looked at a lot of author websites, and you have a really good one. I, I'm very impressed with that. I can uh, recommend the people who do it for me. Who's They're that? One, Zuni, X U N I dot com. Okay. They do a lot of author websites. They are the. It's a mom and a son. They're okay. The people responsive, fast. They also do my newsletter. Um, they're they are really terrific people. I can't recommend them. Yeah, I, just it's very uh, eye popping. It's you know, it's like you look and you're like, oh wow, that's that's neat. You know, it's 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 put together really well. But one thing that I noticed was there was a a police star. You know, I guess they call it a star in Milwaukee. Their badges in Chicago, their stars in New York, their shields. You know. But it was uh, the Palo Alto uh, Police Department had like a star. You had it in like um, Lexicon. Yes. So what's the story behind that? Well, I've you know I've always been a a uh, independent consultant, but I consulted with Palo Alto for twenty five years. Okay. I was there uh, um, in house uh, two days a week for twenty five years. Along oh wow. With other- other departments, yeah. Now you were there as like a police psychologist, or yeah. Okay, you know our department was very late in the game. You know, I I retired in twenty, and probably five or six years before I retired, they thought, "Hey, let's have a police chaplain." And then it's like, okay, we need police psychologists, and this was after a really tough patch of officer suicides. Yeah, so, and there was a bunch of us saying, you know, long, long before that, we need help. And, you know, of course, it turned to a deaf ear, but thank God we have the right people doing that job. It has to be the right ones. So that's my third book. My third nonfiction book is called Counseling Cops, What Clinicians Need to Know. And I wrote that with um, two of my psychology colleagues. Joel Fay and Mark Kamina, and they're both retired cops. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I thought that having them doing this with them was going to make this a more readable and sure. more grounded, grounded book because we know that it's hard enough to get a cop to reach out, to admit they need help, then to right. reach out, to get help. And if they don't get a culturally competent 
clinician, somebody who understands cops, knows what they do and why they do it, they're apt to be uh, really turned off. Yeah, it has to be the right fit. Like our police chaplain was a Milwaukee police officer. He was a vice detective for 15 mm-hmm. years. And you know, he he knows the nuts and bolts of the job. The two police psychologists that we have, one is married to a police officer in a different city, and the other one, her dad was a Milwaukee cop for 30 years. Great. So they know they they are immersed in the culture and they understand that because culture is everything when it comes to policing. Yes. And None of it was pushed on anyone. That was the main thing. And the guarantee of, hey, if you come to me with X, Y, or Z problem, your lieutenant, your sergeant, the chief, whoever is not going to know about this, you know, this there's confidentiality between us. Right. My office in Palo Alto was on the flight path between the briefing room and the locker room, and the cops set it up that way. Uh, because they wanted to sort of normalize talking to me. But I can also tell you the day I left after 25 years, uh, there were still people in the organization who were absolutely convinced I had a video feed right that went in my office and right up to the chief. (laughs) So, you know, there's, there are definitely some people that will never be convinced. Anybody who talked to me, knew that whatever they said stayed within the two of us. Sure. So how did you get started in helping others, more specifically police officers with trauma, you know, that kind of stuff? We'll be right back. In Kenosha, Wisconsin, a motley collection of strangers come together to sit in judgment for what becomes the longest trial in state history. A man stands accused of murdering his wife by antifreeze poisoning. Along the way, these strangers find more in common than anyone expected, evolving into something beyond a simple jury of peers. One year later, they reunite, only to find that they've been poisoned by what suspiciously looks like antifreeze. Is this revenge for their verdict, or forewarning of something more sinister to come? The clock is ticking, and as time winds down, vengeance turns wickedly ironic. Inspired by the real-life jury experience of author Ken Humphrey, The Breakfast Jury is a fast-paced summer novel guaranteed to leave readers guessing until the last page. Pick up this murder mystery now at KenHumphrey.com. Peek behind the curtain of a sordid murder that will make you wonder, did that really happen? Again, that's KenHumphrey.com. Well, it's a long story. I've been doing this for a long time. Um, Okay. uh, I'll try to shorten the story. There was a a time I was uh, a clinical social worker working in the psychiatric unit of uh, a big hospital. Um, and I started seeing police wives coming in to see me, and they would tell me what was going on at home. And I was somewhat alarmed by what I was hearing. And what you would ordinarily do is say, well, bring your husband in. This is a time when there were very few, there's still very few female cops, but uh, there almost always it was the spouse, the wife who came yeah. to therapy. The minute I said, bring in your husband, um, they never the husbands never showed up and the pretty soon the women disappeared because mm. no that uh, the husband was saying you can't talk about what goes on here you know that the stigma and the fear about being put in the the rubber room the minute anybody hears about what yep. i'm doing it on the rubber room so 
that got me really interested in in what was going on with policing. I have a I, I have been a probation officer in the past for oh okay a couple of years, not a long mm-hmm. time, and and I, I'm. I was also really bored with what I was doing for the most part as a social worker. So I put together a class called I Love a Cop. This is 1977, mind Wow. You. Okay. That's pretty, that's groundbreaking. Long time ago. It was very groundbreaking. Yeah. I went up to the local community college and lo and behold, the public relations director of the college was married to a cop. So they pulled her in on this conversation and she said, oh, this is a great idea. I think it's really important. So we put together a class called I Love a Cop, and the college catalog went out. And the day it went out, the class was filled, and there were 40 women on the waiting list. Wow. I thought, all right, there's definitely a need out there. And yeah. that propelled me to go back to college. I quit my job. I went back to college, got my doctorate in psychology, and did my dissertation looking at stress in police work mm. it was kind of a combination of sigmund freud and mickey spillane you know i <laughs> i love i'm sort of a trauma junkie i love the drama and the reality of what goes on in the world of law enforcement i am not so interested in talking to people who are uh irritated with their supervisors or whining i'm not good with whiners so um, and and cops when they if they whine at least they whine very loudly and curse a lot so they're more interested. <laughs> uh, so that got me back, got my doctorate, and then people just started hiring me to come in and do some of this family work because mm. nobody else was was doing it. So that and I I really felt very comfortable working in law enforcement more so than I did when I was just seeing your ordinary kind of client because I I like to laugh. I like to talk. I'm a very I'm active, I'm directive, and that's just the sort of person that a cop is most comfortable with. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. So when did um I Love a Cop come to fruition? When was the first iteration of that book? First iteration was I think 1997. Okay. Okay. It so it took me 20 years to write it. I mean, not that I was working on it all 20 years, but I needed that experience. Right. You know, that's the thing. If you would have wrote that book when you just got done with your doctoral dissertation, it wouldn't have been as good. Because you didn't have you didn't have the meat and potatoes behind it. Right. I didn't I did not have the experience. Since then I've worked in um 23 states in the United States, four okay. different countries. I've worked for um, the DEA. I've worked for um, the Border Patrol. I've worked for, uh, uh, I've been to the FBI Academy a bunch of times, about three times, I think. Cool. I'm, I'm, so I've had very broad experience because I'm an independent contractor. So I was not just attached to one place. Yeah. So, you know, I love a cop. My first recollections, I think I alluded to this earlier, was my younger days as a cop being PowerPointed to death at an in-service. And it's like some ins- some instructors, like, you should really get this book. And it's like, yeah, okay, whatever. I'm trying to keep my eyes open because I'm working late shift. Yeah. You know, and then it's like, hey, you have to go to in-service tomorrow. And you're like, oh, God, you know, eight hours of sitting in a classroom. We're just like, oh, Lord. But I do remember it popping into my head. And I talked to other cops who 
I respected and they just sang its praises. And I'm like, oh, okay. And we're not an easy crowd to please by any stretch of the imagination. So have you, or how many times have you had cops or their significant others come up to you and say, Hey, thanks for writing this book. I, I can't tell you I've lost count. And my, I, at least once or twice a month to this day, there's been three, three editions of uh, this. I love a cop book. So I've updated it three different times. Most recent edition was about two years ago. Yeah. So I, I just finished reading that book about a month ago my only suggestion is I, I love audio. Could you please do it in audio? Oh, well, uh, audio is expensive and I it love is. To my, my own audios, but it takes too long, apparently. Okay. Yeah, to answer your question, uh, Patrick, that I get a lot of compliments about the book. At least twice a month, I get an email from somebody that says help in the subject line. Um, because it's yeah. a family that's falling apart or yeah. they need or something. Um, but countless, uh, it's very gratifying to me that I was part of, the at the beginning of a movement that said, look, these are human beings doing these impossible jobs and they have families and they need attention and they need help. And so it's very gratifying. I think the most common most common response I get from somebody that's been on the job for a while or from their spouse is, I wish I had had this book 20 years ago. Yeah. So what does it mean to you when you have just strangers saying, you know, hey, thank you, you know, for writing this book, et cetera? It means the world to me. I mean, it it, it validates uh, uh, the work I've done. It, you know, it validates the effort I put in. It makes me very happy. So, you know, you had mentioned earlier that, you know, you're a contractor and you've talked to, you know, state, federal, you know, law enforcement, you know, getting ready for a presentation in front of a bunch of cops. I know that could be daunting when you're not a cop. You know, how do you get ready for this? And what's the self-talk before you take the mic? Well, you know, I think you'd have to ask me in what year of my career, because I okay. can talk self-talk today, now, currently, is... um well, I, I like to joke that when I walk in a room, a little old lady with gray hair, it, I have to drop an F-bomb in the back of her <laughs> five minutes to get anybody's attention. <laughs> or I bring, I have stress balls that I've had made up with my name on them, and I throw them at people sometimes. <laughs> make sure they're awake so they don't get <laughs> hit in the head. But, you know, these days um, I have enough credibility and enough experience that I can say damn near anything I want to say. And uh, so I'm not really all that worried about it. And if people have got their sunglasses on and they're reading the newspaper in the back of the room, well, that's their problem. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not, um, I don't need more work. I don't need any of the things I needed when I was much younger doing this. Right. Sure. And I don't get it on at all, so that doesn't happen any. So that's not a problem. Okay. Now, do you have any examples where it kind of started ugly, but you won them over? Well, this is a, yeah a different kind of example. I was going. Sure. This is the first one that popped in my head. I was going uh, up for a job, uh, consulting with a, a moderate-sized police department uh, somewhere here in the Bay Area, and. 
the cops had been interviewing uh, or listening to a woman from a rape crisis center mm-hmm. before. And she walked out of the room and then they invited me in and I sat down and they were talking about how ugly she was. And I, I had to stop, had to think for a minute, but then I said to them, I didn't think that uh, being good looking had anything to do with getting the job. For example, look at yourselves. <laughs> you That's know, a perfect I, comeback. Oh my God. That, that kind of, um, that kind of sexism has come up. You know, I can walk in a room. Um, I was in a, teaching in a reserve academy and uh, I walked in the room and people asked when the teacher was coming because <laughs> they were expecting a man, not a woman. So there's been that kind of stuff. Um, when I do workshops for couples, um, which are very difficult to manage because we're we're doing a lot of different things with uh, the participants, I much prefer to do that with um, my colleague, Joel Fay, who is, because he's a male and because he has 35 years on the job mm. and is also a psychologist, I can talk to the spouses and he, and he can get the attention of the officers. And they're much more likely to pay attention to what's going on. The men in the room are much more okay. likely to pay attention to what's going on when he's there and both of us don't have to work quite as hard as we do if we're doing something like that by ourselves. So we enjoy working together, playing off each other. Yeah, that, sort of that makes total sense to me. So I love a cop. One of the many things that I loved about this book was you actually offer solutions to problems. It's not a bunch of vague catchphrases or obscure theories. How did you get so authentic? I mean, I know it's through experience, you know, talking to cops and their families, but you must be doing it with purpose. And were you like taking notes? It's like, okay, this worked, you know, this person responded pretty good with this or how did that work? Well, yeah, I mean, I do take notes. I do listen to other people. I think, you know, it's not easy to write a self-help book and and without sounding like a pompous idiot. Right, right. So. Um, I didn't want to sound like a pompous idiot. I uh, uh, There was a, a series of books written, self-help books that I really loved called I Love, a, I love um, no, The Dance of Intimacy, The Dance of Anger, and a couple more dance books uh, by Harriet Goldhor Lerner. And I recommend those books to this day. She was a model for me because I thought she, that her books were really, to use your word, authentic. Mm-hmm. I know that that um, cops, law enforcement, and the the people who were associated with them, like their spouses, um, really need some direction. They they do not do well with clinicians who don't answer questions and won't give advice. So you know, to, if somebody asks me a question about myself or what they should do, you know, the the traditional way I was trained is to say to somebody, "Well, what would you do with that information?" Or, <laughs> or why are you asking that question? And I realize that what keeps cops safe is information, right? 
you don't go into a, a hopefully you don't go into a blind alley without figuring out you know where's where can I get out of here and who's in there and where's my backup and all that same goes for their families so uh, people really want something that is uh, not abstract but concrete and it can be actually helpful and I learned from the families that I worked with and the officers I worked with what worked for them and what didn't work for them. And mm. I just put that in you know, the book. Do you have a couple of examples of what works well in, you know, like a police family trying to keep everybody happy and together? Well, yeah, the thing I mentioned earlier, there has to be a commitment that the family comes first. And that also there has to be a commitment that this is a the commitment to communication. Um, and what happens in an awful lot of police families, and I'm really empathetic to this, is that the cops, you'll hear them all the time say, I can't talk about what I've done today at all. Well, I have, I have a, a BS card to throw down on that. Of course, you can talk about it at home, but you have to talk about it in a way that's palatable to you, the person that you're that you're living with, and with your kids. And we want to tell you it's not black or white. It's not tell all or tell nothing. Okay. It can be as much as, as simple as saying, "Look, I saw something today. I hope I never have to see again." Uh, I've talked about it eight times at work already, and we've already done six debriefings. I don't think I can go over it again. Um, it was really terrible. And um, what I really need from you is, um, can you give me like 40 minutes? I want to go out for a run. Or can you give me a back rub? Or can you can you not cook me barbecued ribs? Or not, <laughs> no, what, you know, whatever, say what exactly that you're going through. Yeah. Because your family's reading you the minute you walk through the door. And they they want to know what what face is he wearing tonight? I'll mm. use the pronoun, but we, we know there's women in policing. That what what's what's that face mean? And if if you look angry or disturbed, they're going to think it's about them, not about you, unless you make unless you explain yourself. So that's a really important um, thing for families to remember. When I was you know on the street, well, I spent 25 years on the street. I was quick to share a funny moment because, you know, mm -hmm. police work is filled with them. You know, you, you'll never guess what I yeah. saw today, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, or, and I've known cops that could have made a living out of being stand-up comics. Mm -hmm. I mean, they just, it was Adam is one of them. If you talk to him. Yes. Yes. I mean, it just, it, it, it's amazing to me how funny some of these cops are. Yeah. It just, it just blows my mind. And this, the street, you know, the best part about being on the street was every day was a new thing. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's like sometimes, you know, you have a boring night and then other nights, you know, it's like there's the naked woman with the samurai sword. Right. You know, like, and then, you know, your boss is behind is like, Mrs. O'Donnell, put down the sword. Why is your mom doing this, O'Donnell? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I was a rookie. And, and you know, he's diffusing this potentially lethal situation and he's just. And then we had her laughing. Obviously, yeah. she was having like a psychotic episode. She wasn't all there. There was alcohol and drugs and other stuff going on. And, you know, she's screaming all kinds of stuff. And, you know, my sergeant's behind me. He's, he's like, Mrs. O'Donnell, put down that sword. 
Pat, why, why is your mom doing this? Yeah. And so everybody there started laughing, including the girl with the sword. Yeah. So it just stuff like that. Yeah. You just can't make it up. It just, it happens. So I was always quick to, you know, share something like that. And, you know, the ugly stuff. Yeah. I'd share some of it, but you know, it's like, and when you're knee deep in it as a cop or boss, and if you're on the street, you know, you think that you just brush it off because tomorrow there's going to be something new. Yeah. But here's where cops make them a big mistake. They think the job doesn't follow them home. Right. Follows you home. You're, like I said, your family is reading you and you may think you're doing a good job of hiding it. And but they get it. You're not you. Nobody can hide some of the nobody can hide it. And I think. People fool themselves when they think that they are hiding it. The other thing is that, you know, unless unless you have committed some sort of uh, illegal act and married a child, you're married to another adult. And it should not be the cop who makes this a unilateral decision about what gets talked about. That's something that young families or or new relationships, people should sit down with each other and negotiate that. And some people will say, you can tell me about anything that happens to you on the job. Just don't tell me about something that involves a child or a dog, you know, and that's it. But it's not the officer's decision alone. It has to be the two of you. And, you know, I hear cops all the time say, I open the door, I come home from work. I've been solving all problems all day long. And the first thing she does or he does is hit me with a problem. Yeah. So I mean, again, that's negotiable. Give me, you know, what I need to decompress, or let's talk about those. We'll make a date. To, my husband and I have a business. I'm not saying we're the model for anything, but the, we have a business meeting every morning. We sit down and we talk about what's okay. on his schedule, what's my schedule, etc. So yeah. I mean, there has to be some consistent communication about what's really going on in the lives of all the people involved. Interesting. Very interesting. So you break up a typical police career into phases in your book, which I thought was spot on. I think this would be useful to our listeners who are authors who are writing police stories. Can you dig into it a little bit? I can. Um, Well, it just just seemed that there was, actually, I was influenced by a guy named he was a police chief in Walnut Creek, and his last name is Swanson. And so long ago, I've forgotten his first name. But he actually wrote a paper on this for, uh, I guess, police college or uh, something. And I, yeah. I thought it was very useful, and I so I did some more research on it. You know, this job changes you from the day you walk in there, and you are sort of hopeful and naive and... Uh, and sort of drunk with the novelty of it and uh, and drunk with sometimes newfound power or money. Um, I mean, like you said, if you're 21, when you start this job, you haven't maybe gotten a lot of life experience. Right. Um, particularly if you've been in you know college and just, you know, sort of skated through and had a happy life. Although we don't find that many cops who have had happy lives. Um, but <laughs> to begin with. Um, so that, and that novelty will wear off 
and people will move from being committed to the community and then they get more more uh, attached to their brethren in the blue and then their and then and their own personal needs like salaries and shifts and promotions and there'll be a number of what my uh, friend Andy O'Hara, who's a retired C a California Highway Patrol officer, calls soul woundings. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? Soul woundings. Okay. Those are the little bumblebees, things of thing, the disappointments, the fears, the the stuff you couldn't help, the the tragedies, because cops are exposed to so much tragedy, even if it doesn't affect them personally, safety-wise, that they just got there after, but they've seen it. And uh, and uh, seen the cruelty that can happen in this world, and the it so that stuff starts to build up, and you begin that stuff starts to build up, and then also you get disappointed in many departments, not all departments, but you get disappointed by the way you're treated in house. I mean, we all know that uh, organizational stress out outruns. Um, line of duty stress in oh, all day in, long. Absolutely. Yeah, any study I've ever seen. So that, that begins to happen. You begin to sometimes get hardened and get a bunch of, uh, become somewhat narrow minded. And if you, if all you have in life is this single identity, uh, you know, this is who I am being a cop and you have no other sources of either positive input or um, other interests in life, if your life is totally built on that one pillar and then you fail to get a promotion you think you deserve or you get a citizen's complaint and you get some time on the beach and you feel like your department has thrown you under the bus, that pillar crumbles and that's all you got. Sure. So one of the mistakes cops make is putting their all of their eggs in one basket over which they have no control. This is what I see when cops retire mm-hmm. is like how well adjusted they are going through their careers and there's ups and downs. There's no doubt about it. And the internal stress is a hundred times more powerful than the external stress. It's wow. like, am I going to get shot? Am I going to get infected with, you know, like HIV or from a dirty needle or something like that or hepatitis? COVID. Yeah. You know, we worry about that, but the worry of this chief is going to, throw me under the bus because the optics of this arrest aren't good. It was on the evening news. I did everything correct per SOP rules and regs state and federal laws. You know, I didn't, I did everything according by the numbers, but it looks terrible. And a lot of police work is just plain ugly to the naked eye. You know, there's just, there are lawful uses of force that just look super ugly. They to the untrained eye and somebody who's never done or been involved in anything like that, all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, they're terrible. And then, you know, a politician sees that and is like, oh my God, this is terrible. They go run to the sheriff or the chief or whoever. And you know, you don't know if you're gonna get fired or not for doing right. the right thing. That's right. That's right. So that's why we need culturally competent clinicians who will have confidential practices 
who will deal with officers because we have a, a we tell a story in the counseling cops book about an officer who had been in three fatal shootings and was having terrible nightmares and just thought, I, I can't do this work anymore. And he goes to see a clinician who says to him, uh, so are you ready to stop being a trained killer? Oh, my God. Oh. Isn't that a horrible thing? I mean, this oh. guy's like a victim. Yes. How come these things happened on my watch? How come I had to do that? I come that many right. You know, so in unless people understand, and there's very little understanding, you ask me, do I get people thanking me for my book? I also get a slew of people who are not cops, who just for some reason picked up the book and read it, or who read my fiction because I try to talk about these things in sure. my fiction as well, who say to me, thank you very much. I didn't know that about police work. Mm. I didn't understand what cops go through. I'm next time I get pulled over, if I get pulled over, I'm going to be much nicer to that police officer or I'm going to say hello to one when I pass him. Yeah. You know, when we would get a new batch of rookies from the Academy, you know, I want to, in the latter part of my career, you know, I was day shift. So there'd be an orientation at the district station that they're assigned to. And one of the first things I always said was, Please, please, please hold on to your regular friends. You are going to become tribal. This is a tribal organization. And you're going to think to yourself, nobody's going to understand me. You know, it's like you have friends now that aren't cops. Hang on to them. You need to be around people who don't think like you. You need to be around different people because after a while, you know, it's really easy to get into that whole mindset of, these are the only people that understand me. I can only be around them. And that's right. when bad stuff actually, I mean, some of it's good. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, some of my best friends are cops that I worked with, you know, forever, but I always held on to my friends that I've known since college. You know, I have a, I have a core group of buddies that I've stayed with that are from all different walks of life com- think completely differently than I do when it comes to politics or religion or whatever. And that's a good thing. You have to, you have to be cognizant of that. And well, I, I wish think felt that way. Well, you know, I think that, like I said before, maybe you think that way when you start out, but all it takes is a couple of like critical incidents or something really hairy. And you don't want to talk to your friends. You know, it's like, I remember, you know, I alluded to before, you know, I'm working midnight to eight. One of the great things about that was I got to do a lot of stuff with my kids, like with field trips and all that kind of stuff. And I was like one of the only dads doing it. You know, everybody else was working during the day or what have you. And inevitably, you know, my kids are in Cub Scouts or whatever. And my kids went to private school, went to Catholic school. And I'd have all these people coming up to me that had a lot more money than I did. I mean, we were just scraping by so we could send our kids to these schools. And they wanted to hear police stories. They didn't want to know about me. I know. And and they always find out. I mean, and I wasn't wearing a police shirt. I didn't have a badge on my head. You know, I, I wasn't wearing a badge necklace. I wasn't, you know, strutting around like, hey, look at me, Mr. Cop. They always know every time. That somebody's going to say something. Oh, tell me a story. Tell me a story. And you're just like, ah, I'm running on no sleep. Yeah. And I really don't want to talk about it right now. You know, it's so it's easy to get disenfranchised. Well, it is. But I would have to say to you that, that 
rather than being defensive, when that happens, I would tell cops, look, people are really interested in what you do. Why do we have 1,700 TV shows about cops? Because (laughs) it grabs everybody. So how about just assuming that this person's interest is is legitimate and not malevolent and they're not out to you know now some people are out to complain about a ticket they got or sure. why didn't you see them in the leg and the the latest you know the, the cops are all racist there there are people that are very aggressive and um not well meaning but there's also a lot of people who are simply just interested in what you do and I would say to the cops, rehearse a nice way to say, you know, uh, I mean, I get that too. It's a psychologist. I could sure. be at a cocktail party and somebody comes up and they want they want to talk to me about their schizophrenic Uncle Hermie. <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm, and so I say to them, you know, I'm not working now. That's beyond my pay grade. Um, um, I'm really tired. I'm at, out to have some fun tonight. Um, thanks for your interest, but you know, I'm, I'm really not, um, it's not, I don't want to talk about this, right? I mean, there are nicer ways. Yeah. I, I understand what you're saying. If I was in your shoes, what I would say is like, well, my fee is $350 an hour. Let's go find a couch. You can go lay down and (laughs) let's do this. (laughs) I have said that or when people ask me about some things to do with themselves, you know, why do I always, and I'll say, sorry, I only take easy cases. <laughs> and that tends to get a laugh most of the time. And then we move on. So sure, sure. The, the problem is that cops often overestimate. Oh, it depends on what's where you are, what city you're in, what the la- latest scandal has been, sure. what the latest news stuff has been. But cops often overestimate how much or underestimate how much people appreciate what they do. I I, I would keep on telling my cops at roll calls, et cetera, that, you know what, 90% of the people, or maybe even more, love you guys. They yeah. want you in those streets. They want you helping them. But yeah. the most vocal are the very small minority that don't like you. And, you know, they want to get you, catch you doing, you know, X, Y, or Z, or, you know, there's there's malice there. You know, you know, be on your guard for that, but just have it in the back of your head that most of these people, not to be, you know, like looking through rose colored glasses, but they do love you. They like you. They want you there. No matter where you're working, they do want you there. Thank you, everybody, for listening to part one of this amazing interview with Dr. Ellen Kirschman, the cop doc. I hope you're loving it as much as I am. I hope you would join us next week for the conclusion of this heartfelt and genuine interview. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Cops and Writers Podcast. If you haven't done so yet, can you take a minute and rate and review the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts? If you have already, thank you. As always, thank you for all of your support and, of course, let's be careful out there.